my name is Shinshu. Uh, um, so the name for the company is Zilica. Uh, if you if you are curious, the meaning of Zilica is something like uh, silica or silicon, which powered the whole computing industry. So we put our vision into Zilica, and we think it will become the empowering platform for the next generation high throughput uh, apps on the apps on blockchain. Okay, and and this is uh, an interesting idea because. Blockchain and high throughput are not always two terms that are associated with each other. Right now, um, a lot of the kind of known options yeah. tend to lack high throughput. Um, so, what are you doing to to fix that problem? So, um, we want to improve something called throughput. Basically, you know how many transactions you can process every second uh, with a very secure approach. So that means you know we don't we don't want to say okay we improve the throughput. But then, at the same time, we sort of make the system less resilient or less secure. So that's something we don't want to do. So that's why we really carefully design our protocol. We use some idea called sharding, and sharding is a very you know high-level concept. You know, we can talk more about it. But then, how do you design your sharding very securely and efficiently, um, so that you know when you improve your throughput, and then at the same time you still maintain very strong decentralization and security for your blockchain. And uh, you know, after you do sharding, you still need to uh, make your consensus protocol within each shard very efficient. So that's where you know we use some other techniques to sort of reduce the size of the messages and change the topology of the of the you know network to make it really efficient. So these are some of some of the you know techno- techniques we use in our blockchain protocols. Um, so just uh, I mean, I actually in the past I have worked with some distributed databases who also follow mm-hmm. um, the concept of sharding. Is it pretty much the same kind of concept as anyone who's used any other distributed system or are you using a similar term but to mean something slightly different? Uh, I think the idea all uh, you know, came from the sharding idea in the database field. So, but then, of course, database is just about data, right? So when you apply the same idea on the blockchain, which does not just have data, but also has uh, computing, uh, also has uh, you know, validation, also has smart contracts, things just become much more complicated. And then you will have to sort of invent or innovate in the way you deal with these new challenges when you migrate the sharding idea to the blockchain. And so just to reiterate that, just to, just to double check, also, firstly for people who may not know what sharding is, but also just to drill into the details of how you implement it. Um, so with a distributed database, you tend to partition, a shard is what's called a horizontal partition of data. Um, and it's mm-hmm. typically uh, in a database where you split the rows of a, of a kind of collection or a table or whatever it may be in the database. Um, so that, that kind of means like, uh, say it was a database of event logs, then you might shard by year or something like that. So with a blockchain, mm. Um, mm. well, I guess, I guess it's going to depend very much on the, how someone uses it, but is it a similar, a similar principle? You just right, right. shard the data by a particular arbitrary key or something like that? I mean, you can, you can think, of, think of it that way. So for instance, you have these things called transactions um, in the blockchain. So in, in the very you know, most basic form, it's about uh, one account transferring some asset to another account, or in Bitcoin, it's you know, some unspent uh, 
amount of tokens uh, transfer to to another address. So um, if you look at that, you can actually segregate different uh, uh, you know sets of transactions into different so-called shards. So the way you segregate is something you just discussed. You know whether it's according to some attributes or it's according to a certain you know sender account or things like that. So th there's no you know definite answer to how you shard. So actually, that's one of the parameters you, you, you can tune to, to get a better you know, performance or security. And so let's go back to the consensus side. I mean, again, in distributed databases, the, there is a concept of consensus. It's not called the same thing. Uh, but there is a concept right, right. of determining uh, which write to which shard or which node is, is correct or not um, when, if, if, the, if the various shards ever get separated somehow. Um, so how, how do you work with something like that? Is the, uh, the consensus, uh, is the consensus algorithm available on every, every instance or are there kind of the concepts of like masters and slaves or something like that? Uh, you know, at the very high level, I guess the so-called consensus algorithms would be not fundamentally different from say, Similar things in the database because it's all about you know getting a sort of consensus view or a view in agreement, a view in common among different computers who may have slightly different views, right? So it's all about that. And and one dif one potential difference in the blockchain is that you need to assume uh, you know some stronger attacks. I would say mm -hmm. in, in the database <laughs> environment, you can have other ways. You know, yeah. you can have other cybersecurity measures to make sure that uh, maybe. You know, attackers won't get in, or even if they get in, they won't be able to control more than, let's say, one percent or five percent of the machines. But then, these sort of assumptions may no longer hold in the public blockchain. Uh, usually, people would assume you have one set of nodes who can become malicious, or sometimes they even say uh, forty-nine percent of the nodes may become attacked or compromised. So that's something you have to take into account. That's why the consensus protocols in the blockchain sometimes. Uh, are more robust, but then that also means you need to take more time to reach the consensus. Let's have a, a quick look at some of the other the features that uh, you claim, and then we'll sort of drill into a bit more detail about how they might work. Um, so the scaling aspect is, is one. Uh, and then you're also talking about uh, data flow smart contracts uh, designed with high parallelism, which makes sense, atomic commits, and a user-defined security budget, which I guess is sort of what you were just alluding to, but maybe um, if you could go into a bit more detail about what that means, and I guess are you using your own custom language for the smart contracts, or have you adapted something like Solidity or, yeah. Yeah, sure, let me talk about it. So what we're working on uh, for the smart contract part is we're designing a new language. Uh, it's named Scylla. Uh, the whole purpose is not to design yet another new language. Um, it's, it's really about we want to uh, look at the fundamental limitations of today's smart contract language and we see how do we solve, solve this problem. So one clear, clear problem to us is today's smart contract language such, such as Solidity are way too complex. So they're very rich, they're very you know, expressive. Uh, that's a good thing for the programmers, but then it's really hard to sort of, um, we call it you know, reason about it, we call it verified, but it's really about how can you be sure that when you write a program in that language, it's correct? And it really does things you want it, it to do. And it only does 
you know, such things. So that's very difficult with today's smart contract language. And we think fundamentally speaking, you have to have a different language, which is more formal. When I say more formal, that means, you know, it's, it's all about its amenability to uh, verification. So, for example, in our language, we model smart contracts as student machines. So that means people can stipulate uh, what exactly are the possible states the program may run into. And then the transitions between different states will be sort of uh, defined as these triggering events. So in this way, you can imagine when you write a smart contract in, in that language, you know exactly what it's going to do. And they, you know exactly why this smart contract uh, is doing a particular thing because it's moved from the previous state to the new state and then the triggering event just occurred. Otherwise, it wouldn't even make the transition. So this makes uh, security and correctness reasoning about a particular smart contract you know, much easier. So that's the whole idea of having this new uh, SILA language. But we understand uh, people will have difficulty learning a new language, especially this language is so mathematical. So we were trying to um, do some you know, work. For example, we want to make a tool chain or a compiler to convert from a Solidity-like syntax to this new, new syntax of the Scylla language. So that's just to you know, ease the program, programmer experience. Okay. And actually, uh, like digging, I've just started digging into your code base a little bit. Um, and as far as I can tell, everything's open source, which is always good. Um, it looks like yeah. your, it's written in, your main uh, core anyway is written in C, as far as I can tell. C++, uh, C++. Sorry, yeah. that's, that's what I meant. <laughs> this is, um, and yeah. it looks like, uh, as far as I've seen something um, which I've not heard of called uh, Level DB as a dependency. Mm -hmm. um, I'm guessing that's a database of some description <laughs> from the name. Um, is is that uh, something you created or? Oh, no, it's a Google project. No, it's a Google project. And, that, and what, what, are you, what are you using that for? For um... We only just you know, use that as, as a local database. So on, on each node, we, we need some mechanism to store the data. So that's just something we are using. Okay, no, fair enough. Just, uh, just checking. Um, and I'm guessing, did you, did you opt for C++ for the, for the speed, so to match the high performance requirement? Yeah, that's one thing. Another thing is, you know, as hardcore programmers, we really want to have full control over, you know, the, the systems or access to system cores, so things like that. So we just feel like C++ gives us low-level access to the system APIs. So we know, you know, when something goes wrong, we know exactly where, where, where you know, where. And how, how will, what will the, well, if you have any rough idea, what will the smart contract language look like? Will it be a sort of script-style language or... Yeah, what's what's the, I suppose if you want to contribute to the Zilliqa code base, you need C++, which is a little more complex. But to create the smart contracts, what's the kind of level of coder you're aiming at? Uh, so, you know, for programmers, they don't have to learn a new language. They can just write something like Solidity, and then we'll do the conversion. But then if you, if you want to dig into this new language, it will be something like, you know, state machine. You describe, you know, what are the, what are the states um, in, in, your, in, your, in your program and then how different states may translate from one to another. So we are going to release some examples to show people how this works. But in general, I think, you know, programs don't have to worry about learning a new language. Okay. 
And actually, let's 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 talk about that. So the project is relatively new. I mean, most blockchain projects are relatively new. So, right, <laughs> so right. in, the, in the scheme of things, um, you released a white paper last August. Um, you already have an internal testnet and a public testnet. The yeah. source code was released in January, um, right. and you're aiming for uh, the main network to be launched in Q three of this year, Q3. which is that would be coming up in a few months. Yeah. So, um, right. yeah, uh, when when can developers get their? Well, actually. Maybe a better question is, with the testnet, can developers already experiment with what you have to offer or will they have to wait for testnet version 2 coming along soon? I, I think, you know, they need to wait for a little bit more. Now, the simple APIs uh, are just for sending connections, you know, checking records or things like that. So it's, it's really just about, you know, asset, asset creation or asset transfer. It's not yet about uh, running a complex program. But we are going to try to show something um, by next month, but then you know, don't don't expect a full-fledged Scylla implementation. But at least people can can understand, you know, how 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 the experience would like would look like if you want to program in in our new language. Uh, then after that, of course, we'll try to integrate that new Scylla language to our sharded blockchain and make it make it you know very efficient mm. in terms of runtime. Okay. And, and uh, there's, a, there's a few projects that have been uh, attempting to solve this kind of blockchain scaling issue for a while. Um, I guess the first question related to that would be, how do you compare to some of those? Who would you consider your, I don't want to say competitors because the blockchain space mm. is still fairly open and complementary, but who do you consider your mm. close similarities and how would you differ from them? Mm. So if you look at today's um, high-throughput blockchains um, or proposals of high-throughput blockchains, uh, so, so one idea is you, you try to reduce the number of nodes who make the decisions, right? Because in that way, you can, you can um, get confirmation or get consensus much faster. Uh, as I already explained, we, 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 we sort of want to take another approach. We want to say, you know, all nodes in the network still need to participate in this consensus process. And the result coming from our approach is the whole process is still largely decentralized. Uh, and, and we like that, you know, it, it, it's good. It's good for many reasons. It's good for um, being more resilient against attacks. It's good for, you know, um, being stronger when, when your network runs into some issues. And then it, it's also good for sort of some applications to be implemented. Otherwise, if it's all centralized, people would be wondering uh, why would I need a blockchain in the first place. So we still want to go with you know these original uh, ideas or the original beauty of the blockchain where things are largely decentralized. So that's you know that's one comparison with several blockchains. And then there are other solutions who are not just you know improving the blockchain throughput per se, but then they can run things much faster in in a semi you know detached manner. It's called you know, state channels or payment channels. You have a Redon, Lightning, or uh, or, or Trinity for Neo. So um, the idea is you can run some of these transactions off the blockchain with different payment channels, uh, pairwise, uh, pairwise channels. I think you know the, these are very uh, promising uh, directions to, to to explore, and I do think uh, the the speed of the blockchain is not going to satisfy all requirements. 
So for you know small payments, uh, I think payment channels will really be useful. But uh, you know that's not our focus. Our focus is really to try to improve the fundamental throughput of the blockchain itself. Okay. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. I mean, that's one of the, a lot of these sidechain projects are very interesting, but it starts to get quite um, quite complicated and confusing when you have all these branches of chains going off, and you know, the more complexity you introduce into the system the more complexity a, a developer potentially has to deal with as well um, in, in verifying that the inputs and outputs are matching up and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, your idea is actually relatively simple <laughs> in comparison. And you're using, um, you're using concepts that are not new and that's not meant as a negative that's meant as a, so many people in the blockchain space keep trying to reinvent things that distributed projects have existed for decades you know you can take learning from mm. distributed projects that have existed before and and make right. them work in a new space you know? <laughs> it's, it's, it's not something you have to, you don't have to reinvent everything all the time <laughs> um, you can just reiterate on it yeah but you know there's also lots of innovation we have to do especially at the engineering level you know to make things really work make things really work fast yeah, innovation doesn't isn't the same as uh, uh, reinvention. Maybe I'm not sure if that's right. 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 Yeah, <laughs> exactly. A, you know, uh, I mean, there's plenty of companies that are classic examples of that. They innovate on existing ideas. But um, let's actually on, on one sort of major difference between what you're doing and say these older existing um, uh, distributed systems is, of course, the sort of token, mm. the tokenization, the token system behind many blockchain projects. So I've just come across a, a blog post from December of last year that goes through uh, the details of your token um, mechanism and system. So maybe you could explain that a little, little bit. Uh, how will your token system work and how does it relate to the, the core project? So uh, our token is not special in the sense that it's very similar to Ethereum, you know, Ether tokens. So, <coughs> sorry. So when people, uh, when users want to send transactions or run smart contracts on the blockchain, they will, they will have to pay sort of a gas fee in our tokens. And then uh, such tokens are transferred to miners. Uh, but on the other hand, in the first few years, at least the system, the blockchain system itself also will generate some, you know, awards for miners. So that's also very similar to Ethereum. Uh, one key difference is that the mechanism we will award miners will be much more evenly distributed. Um, it's not like one winner um, who will take all. Um, it, it's more about we will divide the mining rewards for each block, and then we will sort of almost evenly distribute uh, the portion of the rewards among all nodes who contributed for that block. So that's a key difference. So in that sense, you uh, in principle do not require mining pools because you already get you know very evenly distributed rewards so that's something we think will be also very attractive to miners and i guess so in your case um the the token incentivization is uh part of becoming a node in a high processing um network um yeah that's that's the incentive to 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 mine or to have tokens, um, yeah. How how does that relationship between the kind of the the token and the the using the 
technology itself as a kind of end user or end developer relate to each other? So, so for end users who need to use a blockchain to run, let's say, applications, right? Um, because number one, um, um, our sort of uh, electrical cost for running miners will be much lower. And number two, because every second we are processing, you know, thousands of transactions. Um, that means the average cost, this gas cost for each transaction will be way lower than today's blockchains. So that, that could be very useful for, you know, applications. So one typical application uh, who will be benefited from this is, let's say, micropayments, right? Because, you know, the, the surcharge for making a payment will just be much lower and it will be much faster. So this is also an interesting aspect of our blockchain design. I, I think this is one of these aspects where I, I sort of try to constantly think about how, um, how, how especially high-performance blockchains can be used for use cases that aren't just kind of financial related. Um, because that's one of the very obvious use cases, of course. But could you, could you see, for example, you know, at the moment, if I wanted to do some high performance machine learning processing, um, I might spin up uh, some AWS instances or some Azure influences, instances, and of course I pay for the usage. Um, could you foresee uh, your platform being used in a similar way? Like, I want to do some machine learning processing instead of firing up cloud instances. I acquire some tokens to the Zilliqa network and I use it instead. Yeah, you can do that. Uh, you know, people will definitely do their own comparison um, financially, right? So if it's cheaper, they'll they be happy to run this on, on Zilliqa. But more importantly, you know, the, the benefit of running some computing uh, tasks on, on the blockchain is like, if you require sort of higher assurance, then the blockchain will provide that because blockchain is all about, all about you know, redundant checks or redundant validation. So if you want your same function to be um, computed twice or three times on the blockchain, then Zilliqa can provide that. So this is some flexibility. You know, If you look at today's blockchain, uh, you don't have that flexibility to the applications because you either write just on a, on a node or you have to write on almost all nodes. Then if you want some you know, redundant checks, but not all the nodes running the checks because that's very costly, you, you, you really can't do it. So that's something called you know, security budget uh, we talk about in our, in our white paper. And actually, how, uh, what's the sort of impact of using um, blockchain for, or blockchain-like network for reading back that information? Um, you know, often a lot of distributed systems focus on write, and sometimes the read can be a little slower depending on the, the size of the query. But are you comparable to some of those distributed databases when it comes back to reading um, information? Or are you also focusing primarily on the write? We, we have not, you know, um, sort of investigated too much on specific fast read requirements. Um, but on the other hand, we are going with this account-based model. So that means if you just want to, you know, check the balances of the account, I think it should be pretty fast because all the nodes will have the information. Okay. Okay. Um, and just uh, at a complete side issue, I, I noticed right at the top of your uh, token generation announcement, there's a very bold statement saying, not for distribution in the United States, the United Kingdom, China or Japan. <laughs> why, why is that? Uh, just out of pure interest. <laughs> 
so you know that that was sort of the legal advice we received, uh, you know, regarding different uh, potential jurisdictions in, in different countries. I mean, there, there's no there's no discrimination per se. For sure, we want our tokens to be popular uh, among you know everyone in in every country. We want the system to be available to everyone. No, for sure. I just it was just an intriguing thing to see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So and then actually. Uh, so we've already talked about the a little bit about the roadmap. Um, Testnet version two is coming probably in the next couple of months. A mainnet yeah. a little bit beyond that, and then towards the end of the year, you're looking at um, uh, DApps, uh, Anchor DApps, uh, so distribute uh, decentralized applications. Um, mm. I mean, firstly, I guess what's behind the name Anchor, and secondly. What sort of use cases do you expect people can implement with your uh, DApps or DApps, however you want to pronounce it? Yeah, I mean the question is, how are they going to develop DApps? Or uh, yeah, how will they release? How will they develop and release them? Um, what will they be able to do uh, in comparison to to other um, decent decentralized app systems and protocols? Uh yeah, I think it will be similar, you know. So, for example, uh, when we have our next version of the testnet, probably people can already start, you know, coding smart contracts on our platform. So they can start doing some testing on our testnet, and then when we convert to our mainnet, the, the, the transition should be smooth because from our testnet to our mainnet, is, you know, it's just about stability or things like that. Really, the interfaces should stay the same. So... You know, I don't. I don't think it will be too different. And actually, uh, just as uh, whilst we're talking about names, I love the name for your uh, token, the Zillings, <laughs> which I don't know if if anyone's not aware. I mean, there's, there's actually quite a few currencies with the shilling, and the, the old pound used to have the shilling as well. So it's kind of uh, I don't know if you realised that when you did it, but <laughs> but it's kind of a, a cool reference back to that. Um, anything we haven't spoken about that you want to make sure is, is mentioned about the technology, the platform, the team that you want to make sure is mentioned? Okay. And uh, just as a side question, like, what's it like running um, a blockchain project and a tech project in Singapore? Hmm. I would say, you know, Singapore has a, a sort of friendly environment in terms of regulation um, and then people are also getting excited about the blockchain um, but of course you know it's a, it's a relatively small country you also have to think about how do you make your project global right you, you need to think about how do you uh, get more people aware of your project so they get like, excited outside Singapore as well so you know that's some of the things we're working on now and it, what, what, do, um, what do startups and projects in Singapore tend to do? Do they tend to look more towards Asia or towards the US or Europe or a bit of everything? Or it, it depends? <laughs> I think, I, I think yeah. it depends, right? Different projects, we have their different uh, focus groups to target. Uh, for us, we are a platform builder. So clearly, we want to just you know, get this platform across every country. Uh, of course, because we are in Asia, so we will probably do more in Asia to begin with. But really, that's that's about you know just just to get things started. In, in future, we will also try to expand to Europe and, and US as well. I mean, Singapore is always in a somewhat unique position in 
possibly Singapore, Hong Kong, and maybe Australia, New Zealand, kind of these weird like gateway countries in Asia. They're sort of in Asia, but have close connections to to the West as well, um, which give them a, a sort of a, an easier way, I suppose. Is <laughs> I mean, like obviously, I think Singapore is one of the countries that uh, is is fairly favourable to to blockchain in, in specifically, especially. Like it's like the sort of Asian Luxembourg <laughs> and, and uh, Switzerland, um, but are there any are there any negatives? I mean, Singapore also has a reputation for sometimes being, and obviously I, I'm fine if you don't want to talk about this, but you know sometimes having um, heavy-handed regulation in other things. Are there is there any times when it's hard to run a startup in in Singapore? Um, you know, cost cost of living or regulations or. I think one challenge many people face in Singapore and of course in many other countries is hiring the best talents, right? So that's that's always difficult. There's always a shortage of good talents, especially when we are, you know, a high tech company. We are looking for very specialized people who understand computer systems, computer networking, or things like that. So that's just you know a little, a little challenging, but uh, we are we are okay. We are. We are even quite successful, I would say, in terms of finding, you know, these few talents. So, but in general, I think I think the thing is changing. So now more people want to understand tech. More people want to, you know, work for tech. Uh, 